0: Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast. With me, Nicholas Feezy. Well, as I said earlier, this is the the fifth in a series that I'm doing on the Ten Oxidizing Pictures, and they're a series of pictures. And you can see them on the little uh, little booklet you've got, accompanied by poems, and they're used in the Zen tradition to illustrate the stages of spiritual development. And if you want to see any of the previous talks or listen to them, if you pick up one of those red cards at the bottom, it'll show you how to get hold of them either through a our store to be able to watch them. Zen aims through meditation to enable us to realize the true nature of our reality. That's what Zen does. Um, but this 10 weeks is not about studying Zen. It's about using Zen tools, and in our case, the 10 ox pictures, to reflect on the true nature of our reality. So these are just tools that we're using uh, to do that. And I've said this before, but there are many different depictions of the 10 ox pictures. Uh, those are the ones that we use. Um, here's another one. This is number five, um, which is uh, Leading the Ox Home, and that's actually the one that we're going to be talking about today. And that you can see it's a slightly different uh, depiction. And here are, there are a whole series of them here, if you wanted after the service to go and have a look at them, and they're, uh, that's a different one. Uh, but you can see lots of them. They've been done over the last thousand years in, in different uh, sorts of ways. They represent... 10 stages the 10 stages of awakening the stages of the journey to finding the essence of all things and you know really they just enable us to see our place in the journey where we're at and, and what the pitfalls are and, and how it all works it's I always say it's like spiral dynamics spiral dynamics from a thousand years ago this is where they were at uh, before Ken Wilber um and in the first, if you look at your little booklet, in the first one, uh, we've, these are the ones we've done before. The first one, number one, is searching for the ox. In that first one, the ox herd is lost, like most of the world, most of us in the world today. He's been led astray uh, by the cares of the world. He's been led astray by his desire to succeed, to attain, to make his way. And we, like the boy, Are looking for the meaning in life. In the boy's case, the ox represents the meaning in life. It represents the true nature of who we are. You can call it God, the ground of all being, whatever you like to call it. That's the first stage. The second stage, number two, is seeing the traces. So you can see him there, he's looking up, he's seeing the traces, and really we have to be willing in our day and age to empty ourselves out of our own, the things that we think that we know, uh, in order to, to not know, so we can actually see what, what where we're being guided. If we're willing to do that, we can see the traces of our true nature. We can see just little bits of our true nature that gives us a sense that there may be something more. The traces are hidden, but once you have the nose for finding them, once you are open to looking then they begin to reveal themselves so that's when you sort of get little glimpses of things you read little bits in, in books, books you think well maybe there is something else so and the next uh, number three is seeing the ox you can see that that is the moment of sartori that is that sort of seeing the light experience and I always think it's funny that that's only number three and the reason it's number three is that it Although we think it is, we think it's the end point of all spirituality in, in our consumer enlightenment society. That's what we want, that experience. Zen says, no, that's only number three. If you do manage to catch a glimpse of it, that's all well and good, but you've still got a long way to go. And there's no point in saying, no, I'm the enlightened one and let's go forward. You know, really, the, 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 what you see is just a glimpse of, it's a trace. It's just another of the traces. And really what we're asked to do is we're the sponge of the bottom of the ocean with our true nature flowing through us like water. There's nowhere to go, nothing to get. And until we reach that point, we're still very much on the way when we realize that there's nothing to be. And the next seven really go into that. Last week was catching the ox. Our struggle with not being led astray when we're really, you know, but focusing on our true nature. But we're often led astray by the habits that we have in life. And they lead us from that journey. We think, oh, yes, I'd love to go on this journey. But I think I'll just go down to the bar first because that's what I feel like doing. Or I think I'll do this. We get led astray along our journey. And in this picture, there's a big change from the last Uh, ones before that the last three and the big change is that the boy is now attached to the ox he's not on his own anymore you can see he's actually he's caught the ox so he's actually attached to the ox so he's no longer wandering around aimlessly and this change lasts for the rest of the journey he's not separate in his own mind from the ox And there's another thing I want to emphasise from last week. And I think it's vital to where we're going this week. When we struggle, and all of us do this, we struggle with our habits and our temptations. When we do that, we often make our mind the bad guy. You know, it's our mind that led us, naughty mind, you know, you shouldn't make me have that drink. or You know, of course it was my mind that led me astray. If only I could live by my heart and not my mind, then, you know, I'd be a good person. But the reality is, and we mentioned this last week, the reality is that there is no separation between the mind and the divine nature. They are both as of one. The mind is part of our true nature, a part of who we are. And just to illustrate that last week, I read from that Hindu scripture Uh, The Upanishads, like two birds of golden plumage, inseparable companions, the individual self, the mind, and the immortal self, the heart and all that, are perched on the branches of the self-same tree. The former, the mind, tastes of the sweet and bitter fruits of the tree. The latter, tasting of neither, calmly observes. The individual self, deluded by forgetfulness of his identity with the divine self, is bewildered by his ego. He grieves and is sad. But when he recognizes the worshipful Lord, the ground of all being, as his own true self, And beholds his glory, he grieves no more. Seeing him present in all, the wise man is humble, puts not himself forward. His delight is not in the self, his joy is in the self now. He serves the Lord of all. In other words, the struggle between the mind and the heart stops. As the mind realizes that there is no struggle at all, if it's willing to let go, it's desire to control. And I think that's quite important, because we do blame our minds. But when we realize that our minds are just as much as part of our our true nature as our hearts are, then we can relax a bit. And then we come to now picture five. And what I'm going to do is read the verse, first of all, just to introduce him. So you look at picture five. When a thought moves, another follows, and then another, and then an endless train of thoughts is thus awakened. Through enlightenment, all this turns to truth. But falsehood asserts itself when confusion prevails. Things oppress us, not because of an objective world, but because of a self-deceiving mind. Do not let the nose string loose, hold it tight, and allow no vacillation." And then there's always a little extra poem there which illustrates it. The boy is not to separate himself with his whip and tether, lest the animal should wander away into the world of defilements. he is properly tended to, he will grow pure and docile. Without a chain, nothing binding, he will by himself follow the ox herd. So in this one, as the mind sees the true nature, so all the struggle is let go. He lets go the desire to control And then begins to follow the heart. That's the progress that we're making in this. The mind begins to follow the heart. But there's always the danger. Because the mind, one thought is always following another. And the danger is to get caught up in that. And notice in the picture the ox is docile. Yet the boy has firm control of the rope. He is aware of the possibility that the ox might pull away. The mind might pull away. And so... I think with our lives at this stage, our mind becomes aware of itself as creating the struggle. And yet we have to be vigilant to keep the heart and the mind together as the mind easily forgets one thought follows another. You know, I remember when I began my meditation practice 10 years ago, I, I, I sort of waited 10 years after having a bit of an experience to start a meditation practice. And, you know, in those 10 years, I'd had this experience and really nothing really changed in my life. I said this last week. And instead of so like, going after advertising, trying to be a copywriter and be successful in that, I was now going after enlightenment and trying to be successful in that. Nothing, nothing really changed. And then I began my practice and really found myself in this situation. I just couldn't sit still and not have thoughts. And as I'd sit there, I, got, I had my little room, had a spare room in my flat, had a little room, I got a little candle and put it there. And I sat there, and just the thoughts would just keep going, and I just couldn't stop. And so I invented a meditation practice called the sewage treatment meditation practice. <laughs> and the way the sewage treatment meditation practice works is very much like a sewage treatment works. Uh, Like the one by the North 40. In that what happens is that all the stuff comes through and you just watch it. You just watch the stuff coming through. And as you watch the stuff coming through, you suddenly realize you're watching from a different place. You're observing the stuff coming through. And gradually as you observe the stuff coming through, you begin... To quieten at a different place, the mind is carrying on, but you quieten, and so, as you quieten, so the water becomes cleaner as you do that. so I began my sewage treatment meditation, and it, it actually did work, and I just noticed that, as I was doing my practice, that you know my life for the first time started to become more just less dysfunctional. I became less dysfunctional I was able to resist those temptations to do all those things that are you know that I was wanting to do and and so became karma and that that's really the message of of what we're trying to do here we're trying to watch our thoughts so that we the mind can become the deeper mind can become more docile my heart was then able to lead my mind but i had to watch because you know if i if i didn't Keep watching, I was suddenly caught up and I was flowing through that, that sewage pipe once again and worrying. And once we've begun to get a handle on that in our practice, then it begins to bleed into our everyday life. And we start seeing the way uh, that our mind goes off on one and another. And you know, what happens is that the mind automatically makes decisions about things. It's like a spell check. You know, it will auto- You know, in a spell check, you're writing something, and it can be embarrassing when you're when you're sending a text, and you, the wrong, wrong word appears, and then you send it. Actually, i find in my email now. I can I can retrieve emails, which is, which is a great relief to me. But, but you do send emails, and the spell check has made them completely different. You know, you it puts a word around. But our mind does it all the time even though we don't know, it is continually making decisions about things totally automatically. I'll give an example. I just need a volunteer from the audience. Anyone? Yep, Jeff, do you want to come up here? Okay, Jeff. Yeah, just come up here there, Jeff. Right, right. You can put your book down there, Jeff. Right, so just turn around Jeff and face. Now, I just want you to observe your mind automatically making decisions about things. So I want you to think, what is Jeff's favorite music? Okay, anybody, put your hand up. Now, put your hand up so I can it. rock and roll. Okay, anybody else? What's it? What do you? Yes, country. country you think it's very. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. What else? What's his favorite music? Somebody else. Classical. Class- classical. Now, you can just see from that. Here are three different minds. They don't know, you know, what he does like. You know, have made completely. Okay, what's his favorite movie? favorite movie yes scarface. sorry scarface. what do you say scarf so Starf- Star- what do you start what scarface. stargate scarface scarface scarface, scarface. Is that yes i can't quite see that but Yeah, scarface what else somebody yeah sorry forrest gump. forrest gump run jeff run okay anybody else anybody else what was his favorite film Casablanca, I can see that. Oh, All Yeah, and one more? River runs, it. River runs through it. Very good, okay. Favorite book? Favorite book? Um, he's in the book business. He's in the book, is it? you know. He's his favorite. Okay, favorite book, <laughs> favorite, Any favorite books? The Bible. The Bible, there we are. We always see. And then, yeah? Cloud Cuckoo land. land. And what sort of car does Jeff drive? Mustang. A Mustang, what else? <laughs> A truck, great. Round of applause for Jeff. Thank you very much, and you Jeff. So appreciate that. Now, the reason for doing that is to show that they are completely different. We've got completely different perspective. The mind just makes up what that I, I like the scarf face. <laughs> That's very good, but the mind completely, I don't know what was gonna go with the rest of that, but the mind completely makes up what's going on. i got I love these Zen stories. I'm afraid you're going to be inflicted by Zen stories. Guru So I've got another little guru story that actually just gives an example. Because, do you know, the fact of the matter is, your relationship with your mind is the most important relationship that you have in your life. And you have a relationship with your mind. And the moment you just distance yourself a bit from your mind, then you can start to have a relationship. If you think you're your mind, you can't have a relationship with it because you just can't see it but your relationship with your mind is the most important relationship in your life and it governs all the other relationships that you have anyway this is called trading dialogue for lodging now the idea is that in sort of zen times in these monasteries um, if you could make an argument about buddhism with those who are living in the monastery, any wandering monk can remain in a Zen temple. So if you turn up in a Zen temple, if you can make a good argument with the monks, then you can stay. If you can't make a good argument, you have to go on. So you have to prove your your ability to know Buddhism. If you're defeated in the argument, you have to move on and you can't stay. In a temple in the northern part of Japan, two brother monks were dwelling together. The elder monk was learned, but the younger monk was stupid and had only one eye. A wandering monk came and asked for lodging properly challenging them to a debate about the sublime teaching. The elder one, the intelligent one, was tired that day from too much studying and told the younger monk to take his place. Go and request the dialogue, he said, in silence. So the young monk and the stranger went to the shrine and they sat down together. Shortly afterwards, the traveler rose and went in to the elder brother. The traveler got up after they'd had the dialogue and went in and saw the elder brother and said, Your young brother is a wonderful fellow. He defeated me. Relate the dialogue to me, said the elder brother. Well, explained the traveler. First, I held up one finger representing the Buddha, the enlightened one. He then held up two fingers, signifying the Buddha and his teaching. I then held up three fingers, representing the Buddha, his teaching, and his followers living in harmonious life. Then he shook his clenched fist in my face, indicating that all three come from one realization. Thus he won and I have no right to remain here. With this, the traveller left. "'Where is that fellow?' asked the younger monk who'd done the dialogue to the elder brother. "'I understand you won the debate,' said the elder brother. "'Won nothing! I'm going to beat him up!' "'Tell me the subject of the debate,' said the elder brother. "'Why?' The minute he saw me, he held up one finger, insulting me by insinuating that I have only one eye. Since he was a stranger, I thought I'd be polite to him, so I held up two fingers, congratulating him on the fact he had two eyes. Then the impolite wrench held up three fingers, suggesting that between us we only had three eyes. So I got mad and started to punch him, But he ran out and that ended it. (laughs) And you can see there, you know, completely different perspectives from the same story. And and that's how one thought following another, we often, unless you can watch it, we often live our life. We have to be vigilant and watch to make sure that we're not jumping to the wrong conclusions. And the result of this is that we can... Experience that calmness if we're watching. We no longer worry about how this or that will turn out because we're just watching. We don't have to worry about what other people's motives are. We're less interested in predicting outcomes and more interested in what's right in front of us the beauty of the trees, the taste of the food, the effect of the music. Our minds begin to conspire with our hearts to bring us into the present moment, our true home. And being in the present moment, we begin to live in our true nature and life becomes less of a struggle. Now the other name for this picture is taming the ox and some say that it's the most important of all the pictures in these ten ox herding series because it describes the life's work of a spiritual practitioner. When a thought moves another follows and then another an endless train of thoughts is thus awakened. It's about the old idea of not inviting your thoughts to tea. Not inviting your thoughts to tea. Once you stop that continual train of thought, then truth and the enlightened mind begins to appear. And what is that truth? The truth is that this lectern is hard. The sunlight is bright, rocks are hard, and water's wet. That is the truth you begin to see. People in the world have a concept of truth that is based on the rationality of the mind. The concept of truth in awakening is our true nature not something rational the concept of truth in awakening is our true nature the true nature of what is not what we think about the difference between what is and what we think about yamoda mamun the uh, zen master says you may search the world looking for truth but there is no truth in the world Truth arises only from the heart-mind. When the heart-mind that is looking, when the heart-mind that is looking is true, then the world is also true. When the heart-mind that is looking is false, then the world being looked at is also false. And that's what's beginning to be revealed at this stage as we realise that one thought follows another. As it says in the poem, through enlightenment, all this turns to truth. Through the realisation of the, the which I should really um, t- copyright, the sewage treatment meditation, <laughs> the reality becomes clear. There is... There is nothing to do. Just let it flow. It is effortless. There's another famous Zen story. And I I particularly like this one. This Zen story is about um, a monastery. And the abbot died. And members of the order were told to say who they think should become the next abbot. It's always very important. You know, who's going to be the next abbot. And a blackboard was set up and put in a great courtyard uh, for applicants who were then invited to submit their ideas of why they should be the abbot. And the abbot's deputy, the number two, who was also the favourite to inherit the title, wrote on the blackboard that the mind is like a polished mirror... And not until every speck of dust is removed from the mirror will the mind become clear and enlightenment be attained. Not until the last speck of dust is removed. He then went on to explain the nature of the mirror and the nature of the speck of dust. And he put it all up and this contribution was admired by everyone for its eruditeness. Then the next morning, they all came down to look at the mirror um, and, um, you know, reflect on it again. And someone had scrawled chalk all the way through the mirror and written, what polished mirror, what speck of dust. The head monks immediately launched an investigation to find out who'd done this thing. And they found that it was done by one of the undercooks and they immediately made him the new abbot. And the reason they did that was because the cook realised that the whole dilemma of the greater self and the smaller self, the mind and the being, was an illusion. That there is no dilemma There is no decision to make because the very fact that you make a distinction between the greater self and the smaller self is in fact an error in itself. We create the idea that there are two aspects of the self in order to explain the fact that we experience ourselves as being separate and distinct from the greater self. We experience ourselves as being separate from the ground of our being. And we explain that to ourselves by saying good mind or naughty mind, you know, good true self. And we make that distinction when in fact in reality they are one and the same. The reality is that it is all one thing, the higher self and the lower self. There is no fighting between the two. There is just a letting go into the truth of what is a letting go into the truth of what is. The realisation that everything is all a part of the same. That's why in the Upanishad story, both birds are in the same tree. The individual self and the immortal self are perched on the branches of the self-same tree. And it goes on to say that the subtle self within the living and breathing body is realized in the pure consciousness wherein there is no duality. When we realize that there is no duality, then we begin to see the truth. And that's the key bit. There's no struggle because the small self that worries about being successful, and this is quite interesting, the small self that worries about being successful is actually the same as the greater self that is driving everything. We don't have to embark on this struggle. We have to let go of the struggle. We have to see that the desire of our hearts and our minds and all that stuff that goes on, you know, to know, you know, what's coming, what's going to happen next. The impetus for that is all for the greater good. There's a great movement that the mind is trying to identify. I must be successful. I must do this. I must do that. There's an impetus to good that's there at the basis of it. And actually, when we let go into that, in the end, all our desires and all our wishes are fulfilled by giving up. By giving up to the desire and giving up to the fact that we don't have to fill the desire ourselves. Because actually, we cannot imagine the depth of satisfaction that our true nature can offer us. I might think that a nice yacht in the Bahamas with my wife Heather and our children, of course, and all the mod cons and everything we could possibly want is what I would actually want. But actually, the cosmos will will, will show me differently, that the true depth of my contentment, it knows how to give me that. And that is what is meant by seek first the kingdom of heaven and all this will be given to you. That's what's meant by that phrase. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all this will be given to you. If you allow yourself to drop that struggle, then everything comes to you. There is really only one urge in life and that urge is towards the greatest good. All other urges are merely aspects of that one urge that we misinterpret and redirect in ways that we think will satisfy the urges rather than giving those urges to that greater urge towards the greater good. So as we live our lives, we're conscious of our wants and needs, and we do judge our wants and needs. Some we judge as being good, some as bad, and then we tend to act accordingly. We say that this is from the small self and that's from the expanded self, therefore I will do the noble thing we have to see that there is no noble thing. There is just what is. And all of it is part of the same thing, which is when the ox can be led in docility by the ox herd, when there is no struggle anymore and one just carries on. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you, and if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube, or any other outlet.